Pierre Polyev derangement syndrome continues, and the legacy media starts to pivot its criticisms towards the broader Conservative Party of Canada. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. So one of the major lines of criticism against Pierre Polyev, and no, I'm not talking about how his rallies are supposedly too white or how he's some kind of a secret white supremacist just with no evidence and it's never been proven, but the media love to say that anyways. No, no, I'm talking about the way that the media react to Polyev's criticism of the Bank of Canada. That Polyev has had a very consistent, very clear, concise criticism of the Bank of Canada for its failure mostly to manage the inflation crisis and the way that they have printed money throughout the COVID era. This has been a consistent topic for Pierre Polyev. If you remember, he was on my show two years ago, two years ago in the beginning of the pandemic, he joined the speaker series that we were doing at the time. We did an in-depth interview entirely on this issue of inflation, of the problem with printing money and how it creates a hidden tax on Canadians. You should go check out that interview. But you could just see that Pierre Polyev has been talking about this issue in a credible and concise way for a very long time. However, as soon as the leadership race got underway, the media started looking at this criticism of the Bank of Canada, making it seem like it was some kind of a criticism that was beyond the pale, that it was that was outside the realm of acceptability, that what he was saying was dangerous, it was radical, it was populism. And the, the media created this sort of narrative about Pierre saying that, that what he was doing was wrong. So we've got so many examples of this. This is in the Financial Post back in May. They say Pierre Polyev says he would fire the Bank of Canada government if elected prime minister. They quote Polyev saying, I will replace him with a new governor who would reinstate our low inflation mandate, protect the purchasing power of our dollar, and honor the working people who earned these dollars. That's what Pierre Polyev said during the leadership debate in Edmonton. Polyev added that those who caused soaring post-pandemic inflation rates must be held accountable. And so this is a line of criticism that Polyev has had throughout the campaign. Now, just to show you some of the reaction to Polyev and and what he's been saying, really lots and lots of pearl clutching, lots and lots of people saying that his rhetoric is over the top. So here's John Ibbotson over at the Globe and Mail saying just that, why Pierre Polyev should reconsider his rhetoric about firing the Bank of Canada governor. And Ibbotson writes in this piece, the only way the government can force a governor's resignation is by formally and publicly demanding the bank change course. He writes that if he ever does become prime minister, Mr. Polyev should think carefully about using that nuclear option. It has only been tried once and it did not end well for the government. So it's interesting because basically Abidson's making the point that the prime minister shouldn't have this say. They shouldn't be able to determine who the Bank of Canada governor is, which is kind of ironic given that the prime minister gets to appoint the governor of the Bank of Canada. It's one of the many positions that the prime minister gets to appoint. The prime minister gets to make up so much of the federal government and and the duties of the federal government in their image in what they want. And so a prime minister has that power. Justin Trudeau has that power. He was the one who appointed Tiff Macklin, who is the current governor of the Bank of Canada. Again, it's one of the things that the prime minister gets to do. So acting like it's so out of step for a politician to suggest that if they were prime minister, they would do things differently, sort of 
undermines the whole idea of democratic government and elected government. Yes, becoming prime minister it avails you to certain powers, including getting to appoint people like the head of the Bank of Canada. Likewise, we had an op-ed over in the Toronto Star written by Heather Schofield, who said that Pierre Polyev has outrageous ideas about the Bank of Canada. His party and his country deserve better. So likewise, she writes, the promise or threat to Axe Macklem was the logical extension of many months of Polyev lashing out against the central bank, accusing the institution and its leader of collusion with the liberal government and deliberate exacerbation of inflation for political purposes. Never mind that there's no logic in the call for Macklem's head in and of itself. It's such an outrageous and irresponsible idea with so many implications for Canada's economic stability and reputation, let alone prosperity, that the candidate and the thinking public just can't leave it alone. Let's set aside Polyev's nonsensical statements for a moment to consider what we're left with if the Conservative Party wants to hang on to its reputation as good economic managers. So according to this op-ed in the Toronto Star, the Conservatives are not allowed to criticize Justin Trudeau's appointee to the Bank of Canada. It is irresponsible and outrageous, and it hurts Canada's stability and reputation as well as our prosperity. What about the fact that the government has been printing money out of control? What about the fact that inflation is rampant and interest rates are going up? These pundits ignore all of the facts about our economy and their just knee-jerk reaction is to defend Justin Trudeau, defend his appointees and say that everything is rosy and everything is good. It will continue. There's another report over in Bloomberg saying that Polyev's reckless attack on Macklem blasted by Bay Street. So same kind of stuff. Apparently, this is what political leaders in basket case dictatorships like Turkey do, according to this analyst. And so again, the media has told us over and over again that it is just so outrageous that Pierre Polyev would even consider criticizing the Bank of Canada for the policies that they have put in place. And this criticism has even seeped into Polyev's own party. So recall that Ed Fast, who used to be the finance critic for the party, he came out and also criticized Pierre Polyev. Now, Ed Fast was co-chairing Jean Charest's leadership campaign, so not exactly a neutral observer here. And he came out and publicly condemned Pierre Polyev. He said the breaking point seems to have come on Wednesday when Fast told reporters he believes Polyev's vow to fire Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin over the country's inflation rate, the highest it's been in 30 years, hurts the party's credibility on economic issues. And so after Ed Fast came out criticizing his own party and the sort of front runner of this race, Pierre Polyev, he came out and said that Polyev and his supporters tried to muzzle him on monetary policy, and therefore he offered his resignation to interim leader Candace Bergen of the Conservative Party. So again, this whole drama and the process of infighting between these candidates all came because apparently it was just so outrageous for Polyev to be criticizing the bank of <laughs> the governor of the Bank of Canada, despite the fact that yes, we are experiencing unprecedented interest rates and inflation in this country. I, I, I want to just pause a little bit and refer to a friend of mine, Bed Woodfiden's uh, piece he had over in the hub at the end of May. It was really interesting. He talks about how Canada's aspiring populace aren't really actually all that radical. He makes a really good point 
And he says that you, pe- pe- the, the media, people like Ed Fast, the sort of more establishment part of the conservative party, are throwing this accusation at Pierre Polyev that he is a radical, that he's extremist, that he is a populist. Typically, when we think of populists, we think of people who are appealing to sort of nativist, uh, anti-immigration sentiments that are very pro-domestic policies. They might even be pro-big government, thinking of people like Marie Le- Marine Le Pen in France or, or Donald Trump in the United States. And, and to, to, to take and to try to put Pierre Polyev into that camp is just such an awkward fit. To take a criticism like this, saying that someone who criticizes the Bank of Canada, saying that they don't have the independence that they should and that they're partially responsible for this financial mess that has been engineered, yes, by Justin Trudeau, but that people like Tiff Macklin at the Bank of Canada have gone along with and enabled, that, that fundamentally that is not a populist or radical attack. It's actually at its core, a liberal attack. It's saying that this institution needs to be better protected, that it needs better safeguards, that we need more responsible policies, and that the relationship between Justin Trudeau and the Bank of Canada is too close, and, and that there needs to be more protection and more of a safeguard between those. That That's fundamentally what Polyev is arguing. And Ben Woodfine points this out. He says, this is a quote from this piece in the hub. He says, he may be attacking the independence of the bank, but at least on his account of what he's doing, he's not attacking the notion of an independent bank. Rather, he thinks he's trying to restore it. In practice, what Polyev seems to be offering is liberalism, albeit a different flavor of it. He doesn't seem intent on challenging Canada's liberal consensus in any meaningful way. That's exactly right. Polyev is saying that he wants more independence. He's not undermining the institution. He wants it strengthened, which again is the exact opposite of what his critics are saying. Well, lo and behold, on June 2nd, guess what? The Bank of Canada came out and said that it welcomes critics like Pierre Polyev, essentially admitting that Polyev has been right all along. So this is the headline over at the CBC of all places. The CBC writes this, following Polyev's attack, Bank of Canada officials says it's accountable for failure to check inflation. So that is the Bank of Canada's own words that it has failed when it comes to inflation, which is exactly the criticism that Pierre Polyev had. So this is from the CBC piece. The deputy governor of the Bank of Canada acknowledged Thursday, the institution has been unable to keep inflation at its target rate and should be held accountable. Deputy governor of the Bank of Canada Paul Baudry made the remarks in response to Conservative leadership candidate Pierre Polyev's claim last month that the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin was surrendering his independence to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau through a money-printing quantitative easing program in response to the pandemic-driven economic crisis. So during the party's official English language debate in Edmonton, Polyev also said he would fire Macklin if he becomes Prime Minister. Baudry, who's the top bureaucrat over at the Bank of Canada, was asked by reporters Thursday to respond to those remarks. He said this, the aspect that we should be held accountable is exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. So a little bit of vindication for Pierre Polyev over all this, and he acknowledged so much. So two days later on June 4th, Pierre put this out on Twitter. He said, I want to congratulate the Bank of Canada for accepting blame for its mistakes. They did what Trudeau told them, print money for deficits, causing runaway inflation and a dangerous housing bubble. But now they're doing what's unthinkable in Ottawa, taking responsibility, progress, Pierre writes on Twitter. So again, vindication, because after, despite all of the attacks from the media and even from within his own party, the bank is now coming out saying, you know what, uh, we we made some mistakes and we caused some of these problems, just as Pierre Polyev said. Well, it goes even deeper. On June 9th, the CBC had a follow-up piece saying this, following 
Polyev's attack, Bank of Canada governors says he welcomes criticism. So it's no longer just a top bureaucrat over at the Bank of Canada. It's Tiff Macklin, the person, the man himself who was appointed by Justin Trudeau as the governor of the Bank of Canada. So according to the CBC piece, it says that Tiff Macklin shrugged off conservative leadership contender Pierre Polyev's pointed criticisms of him and the central bank Thursday, saying he welcomes input from elected officials and he knows inflation is too high. So again, Macklin says that he is going to leave politics to the politicians defending his own performance, but again, admitting to the fact that inflation is too high, which again is a central criticism of Pierre Polyev. So Pierre is not all that offside after all. Oh, and by the way, on June 9th, we also learned the Bank of Canada says that Canadians could see a mortgage payment jump by 45% in the next few years, by 2025, 2026, as the rates continue to rise. So some Canadians who took out mortgages in 2020 or 2021 could see their monthly payments jump by as much as 45% in the next few years, given the rising rates, according to the Bank of Canada's scenario released on Thursday. Elevated levels of inflation, which is currently at a 31-year high, could also mean that households allocate more of their income to food and gas if wage increases do not keep pace in this context. Highly indebted houses are especially vulnerable to a loss of income. Polyev again responded, could you afford to pay 45% more for your monthly mortgage payment? Justin Trudeau's inflation deficits and money printing have real world consequences. Stop this now before Canadians find themselves no longer able to afford their home. He also tweeted this, when the Bank of Canada surrenders its independence to print money for Trudeau, it inflated a housing bubble. If the bubble bursts, countless people will be underwater on their mortgages facing bankruptcy. Another reason to fire Trudeau and his governor. So again, rather than the media paying attention to the very real changes and the disastrous consequences to Justin Trudeau's economic policies, again, they would much prefer to criticize Pierre Polyev and say somehow that he is completely out of step. That is wrong. <laughs> Polyev in this instance is right. Obviously, it is a very big concern and Justin Trudeau has gotten us into a huge mess. But what we're seeing now is rather than admit that they were wrong, rather than the media saying, okay, turns out that that Pierre Polyev was, was correct when he was criticizing Trudeau and Macklin for their printing of money and inflation and interest rates, uh, they're just going to quietly shift their criticism uh, to another place, never acknowledge they had made mistakes. And that even the Bank of Canada admits that they were wrong. Now the media is starting to shift their criticism towards the broader Conservative Party of Canada. I'm talking about the big news that the Conservative Party has managed to recruit some 600,000 people to join the party to vote in the upcoming leadership race. These numbers are staggering. They're totally unprecedented in Canadian history. And so, of course, there the media are to jump up and down and criticize, again, the Conservatives. How dare they? This is something that uh, I should have included last week in Fake News Friday, but I missed it. And it's, it's just such an interesting take from John Iveson over at the National Post. He uh, had this story that came out last week he said so many new conservatives but not even the party knows the real number and so this is how he starts the piece he writes this there's something a little vulgar about conservative leadership candidates bragging about the number of new members they've signed on it's like the toxic masculinity of men claiming sexual conquests. Okay, so apparently conservatives are just toxic men and they're not even allowed to tell you how many members they signed up, even though it is incredibly impressive and, and the media are understating it. Remember, we told you about how back in 2013, Justin Trudeau signed up 150,000 members and the media were salivating and jumping up and down congratulating him. Um, now we have the party signing up some 600,000 members, 300 and some thousand came from 
from Pierre Polyev's website himself. And if they even mention it, if they even talk about it, well, according to the legacy media, it's toxic masculinity and it's sort of like claiming sexual conquests. Okay, John Iveson goes on to just say the basic rule of thumb in journalism is to never believe anything, especially from politicians. Well, if only that worked both ways. That is a standard that journalists hold conservatives to, of course, as we know, and we've shown over and over again on the Candace Malcolm Show, that is not the standard that they hold for Justin Trudeau. They basically run with whatever the liberals say as their headline without validating or verifying it. We've seen many, many times they've had to walk that back. But regardless, that the, there's a theme in the legacy media saying that casting doubt on the credibility of the party, casting doubt on these numbers. Uh, CTV had a headline saying conservatives say leadership vote won't be delayed after many new members signed up all in scare quotes. So we're seeing this as the new narrative from the media again, questioning whether or not these numbers are real, questioning whether or not the party can handle it, saying that there could be some doubt on the credibility of this election, just given that they frankly just don't believe the conservatives when they say that they're doing this well. Last week, I had Hamish Marshall on the show to talk about this huge growth, the excitement, and what it means for Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh, who again, should be pretty worried, pretty concerned by the fact that conservatives are able to appeal to so many Canadians to capture the imagination, to encourage them to pay 15 bucks to join a political party, which is not something that normal everyday Canadians do. Most Canadians are never members of a political party. So the fact that they're, that they've, they have this. So the fact that they have this excitement, the fact that so many Canadians have joined this party, really show something. And and of course, legacy media that is there to try to undermine that excitement. And I think this is a good time this show to bring in our friend Ian Brody. Ian is currently the head of the Conservative Leadership Election Organizing Committee, which is the body that runs the Conservative leadership race. Uh, in the past, he was a former uh, chief of staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He served as the strategic advisor to the Inter-American Development Bank and was a professor of political science over at the University of Calgary. So Ian, thank you so much for joining the program. Great to see you, Candice. And so I noticed on social media over on Twitter last week, you, you sent out a tweet basically just saying that you were in the Conservative offices last week. Well, here, I'll read it. I was in the Conservative Party offices, uh, headquarter office last week, including for the membership deadline in the race. I do not see a scenario in which the race could be delayed. Candidates have signed up many, many new members and party staff are doing extraordinary work to produce a voters list. I expect we'll meet the deadline set out in the Conservative leadership rules. Uh, so, so what do you make of some of the criticism that is being directed towards your party that you just simply cannot handle the number of new memberships that you've received? Yeah, I should say since that uh, uh, tweet, Candace, we've confirmed that we're looking at more than 600,000 members uh, uh, on the final membership uh, voters list for the, for the race that wraps up in September. Uh, so I think you mentioned last week, all of those people to vote in that race have to be signed up as members by June 3rd. So I was in the party office until uh, the closing of the, uh, the memberships on June 3rd. Yes, it's a huge number. I mean, we started this um, uh, leadership with around uh, 180,000 members, I guess, at the beginning of the year. And so just an enormous growth uh, of membership signups, which is, let's just say it's good news. It's not just good news, it's historically good news. And I think everybody involved is, is proud to be involved in this historic piece. Um, <clears throat> in the past, uh, memberships have, for a leadership campaign or for a local nomination campaign have traditionally been signed up a little, you know, uh, paper slips, the, you know, duplicate or triplicate slips with uh, with checks attached or or whatever, and it took uh, months and months and months to enter all those 
names and addresses into the computer to generate uh, a, a voters list and to cash all of the checks. This time, for the first time uh, in this leadership race, compared to previous leadership races, uh, the party insisted that uh, basically all of the members that signed up had to sign up through the party's website. That just cuts the processing time to put out a membership list, not in half, but by like one tenth of the effort uh, that we've had before. And then we can use uh, you know all, all the tools of, of big data to go through and find duplicates or people whose whose uh, home addresses are not you know quite rightly formatted for uh, for Canada Post ballot. So I think all these criticisms we've had from people who are involved in previous leadership races. Uh, they're forgetting the, the, the huge advance in technology and the, the change of the rules that required effectively all of the memberships to be entered into our computer system as the race went along. So there's still work to be done. Uh, the party's membership staff uh, and accounting staff, all the staff that had office are going through trying to clean up that list. As you know, lots of people live in rural areas uh, in, in Canada. It can sometimes be, you know, their mailing address and their home address are in different writings. So that matters for our race. So that all has to be done manually. But the idea that we're starting with, you know, uh, a, a shoebox the size of the Sky Dome uh, full of 600,000 paper memberships and I've got, you know, thousands of people at head office, keep punching them all into the computer. That's just, that's a relic of uh, kind of 10, 10 or 15 years ago thinking we've, we've advanced since then. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you have uh, the technology to keep up with the demand that, that it seems like there's so much interest in the party right now. So do you, do you have an estimate of how many how many members you said 600 is a little low now? There, some of the criticism may be that some of the memberships might end up getting thrown out, that they're not legitimate. Uh, what, what, what's your estimate for how many current members there are in the party? Well, we won't know for another uh, couple of weeks. That's a that's a that's a tricky job of of cleaning up the list. Although this is the third leadership race we've had in the last six years, so I have to say, party staff are getting very good at this. And of course, uh, uh, for each election, the party runs a couple of hundred local nomination races. They're you know smaller events, but it's the same problem of trying to clean up membership lists to vote at at, at local nominations. Um, I wouldn't be. I'm not too too worried about about fraud. Um, I, I, in a big leadership race, there's always you know organizers out there who are who are signing people up faster than they can, faster than they can read the rules. What I'm mostly worried about is in a big effort like this, especially as you get down to the deadline, uh, people signing up through multiple organizations just in order to make sure their name is on the membership list. We've seen that already in the uh, staff review of the list. Uh, people who signed up two or three times just to make sure they had the right to vote. Uh, but I think that itself is also a good measure of intensity of interest here, right? There are people who really uh, desperately want to make sure that their vote will count in this leadership race, and they're not they're not going to leave it to chance. They're going to sign up two or three times. That makes our our job a little uh, uh, trickier. But again, this is the sort of thing we've gone through before. I, I think what encourages me here is that if you think about the Conservative Party, you know, six hundred and upwards of six hundred thousand members, um, bigger than the city of Hamilton. <laughs> Uh, bigger than the city of Halifax or Quebec City, bigger than Regina and Saskatoon combined. Um, we have now um, uh, almost twice as many members as uh, there were voters for the Green Party in the last federal election campaign. I mean, this is a huge, this is a huge mobilization effort. And uh, look, last week, um, Aaron Wary at CBC had a piece, uh, opinion piece out about how the Liberals aren't going to deal with rising prices until the fall. Um, a pretty lackadaisical approach to, I think, what is the number one economic issue in the country right now uh, for Canadians. Uh, the NDP Liberal Agreement ensures that this approach is going to go on for the next three years. At 8% inflation, you know, that means we're all 
25% poorer by the time this agreement comes to an end. And conservatives, on the other hand, we've had six credible leadership candidates out talking to people in cities and towns across the country. They're hearing about this and other pressing issues on the ground. And I think that's what's driven really 400 and something thousand people to sign up new in addition to the 180,000 we had at the beginning of this race. Well, absolutely. It's the conservatives that are the only ones taking the issues in our economy and our country seriously. And I think that a lot of Canadians are waking up to that. Ian, I, I read a lot of the comments uh, and, and and feedback from True North viewers. A lot of them are new members to the Conservative Party, people who have never voted Conservative or never been part of the Conservative Party before. So I'm just wondering to the viewers who, of, of this podcast or listeners of this podcast who are new to the Conservative Party, could you explain a little bit about how the leadership process works? Like once you verify the list, what happens next? Yeah, so we'll have a, a preliminary list out to the candidates. Each of the six candidates will get a preliminary list over the next couple of weeks uh, once we've done uh, our cleanup uh, of the list. After that, each of the campaigns will get 72 hours to uh, submit corrections to the list. There may be people on the list they don't think are, are eligible to vote. That gets a bit technical. I can go into the details if you want. Or they may uh, think there are people who should be on the list that, for whatever reason, have been have been missed. I mean, sometimes you get, you know, uh, ENQ Public and ENQ Public Junior. If they get, you know, merged as a result of uh, one of our computer uh, uh, uploads, you know, maybe they should be. But actually, two different people. We can we can fix that. So it'll be 72 hours for them to come up with changes to the list. We then have uh, about 72 hours to uh, to make those changes to the list. And at that point. Um, the, the membership list is the voters list is closed. Everyone will get everyone who has signed up and is on that membership list will get a paper ballot in the mail. Uh, the party's constitution requires that we have a postal ballot sent out to people. So if you think about that, um, you know, from um, from Central Canada, I always say we've got we've got members in Whale Cove, Nunavut, uh, getting mail to Whale Cove, Nunavut, letting those members fill out the ballot and send it back. Is it takes a long time. Uh, Canada Post has some challenges these years to try to get uh, during COVID to try to get mail out and back. So that's many weeks. Plus, you can't just print 600,000 outgoing ballots at, you know overnight and mail them all on the same day. It's going to take several weeks to get all those ballots out. Uh, the ballot is itself uh, a little bit complicated because uh, in our party, we have a single ballot, but people have an opportunity to rank order their candidates. So they may want to cast a ballot for particular candidate is their first choice if the candidate gets dropped off uh, a second round of balloting they get a chance to have a second choice or a third choice in this case uh, down to six choices altogether uh, each round of counting uh, we're looking for a candidate to get uh, 50 percent plus one of the points that are available the party's constitution uh, to a certain extent equalizes the voting power of each riding uh, so just you know, think about the conservative strength in rural areas and in Western Canada, uh, the bulk of the points that are available, the bulk of the voting parts available in this race will be in ridings that we don't hold. So it encourages the candidates to go to and organize in ridings that the conservatives don't currently hold in the House of Commons. And in particular, uh, remote ridings where we don't have quite so many members, territories, Labrador, and so forth. There's a huge incentive for the candidates to go out and organize uh, strongly in ridings where the party is particularly not very strong on the ground. And so uh, at the end of that, there'll be, I expect, multiple days of counting the ballots when they come back to Ottawa. All the ballots have to be back by September the 6th. That gives us four days uh, for the last ballot coming in until the announcement on September 10th. 
and I don't see any scenario at the moment, uh, barring a public health uh, challenge in the fall. I don't see a scenario that would have us that would have us changing any of those deadlines right now. And so, so four days from the time the ballots are accepted to the time that the the the, the, the leader is announced, uh, why does it take that long? So we, because this is a mail-in ballot, so unlike. Um, in-person elections during a general election campaign where you have to show up at a ballot at a voting station and show some identification, you know, show, show your, yourself in person to the returning officer and then mark the ballot. This will all be conducted by mail. So we do have to be a little bit careful to make sure that, um, that the ballots have been cast by the people who, uh, who they were assigned to. So when people cast a ballot, they have to include a copy of some photo identification, something like that. That all has to be verified by hand. Uh, there's no way to automate that, and we have to make sure that the, the ballot that comes back hasn't been photocopied or otherwise fabricated by someone, so they have to be verified before they can be counted. That's a, a very time-consuming process. That process will start in July when we expect the earliest ballots to come back, and we'll proceed through August. Um, I don't expect we're going to get that many ballots at the very end on September the 6th, uh, but it's possible that we could get a, a last-minute search. So there's a couple of days in there to go through that process of verifying that the ballot has been properly cast. And then I expect we'll take a few days to count um, ballots at the, at the scale that we're talking about here. In the past, uh, it's taken about a day to count you know, 150,000, 180,000 ballots in the last few races to 200,000 ballots in the last few races. Um, so if we scale up to uh, uh, 500, 600,000 ballots coming back, we're going to need a little bit more time, even with, even with extra people and extra counting machines to help us with the counting. Excellent. And uh, just just one final, uh, well, one, one other question about the process here. Um, there, there has been some criticism specifically from the Jean Charest camp um, about the legitimacy of the race. I know that uh, Tasha Carradine, who's a co-chair for uh, Charest, said that the next leader will have no credibility if the race isn't transparent. Uh, what, what is your response to these kind of criticisms? Look, I, this is always a, a challenge in a very long race. Uh, people get uh, you know antsy about the outcome, and I, I understand that having been on the side, you know, I've been on Tasha's side before, uh, helping to run leadership races. These are our long treks. Um, that said, uh, as I say, each campaign will get uh, a three-day period to take a look at the interim uh, voters list and to make changes or suggest changes that they corrections that they need they think need to be made uh, will then release the final list uh, to everybody uh, sometime in July uh, every candidate will have an opportunity to have scrutineers their own campaign observers observing the verification process in the last campaign the verification was webcast live uh, on a web television uh, uh, facility platform. I expect we're going to do the same uh, this time so you can see 24 hours a day uh, what's going on. And then each campaign will have the opportunity to have somebody uh, scrutineer or observe uh, the counting process and to take a look at the calculation of the, of the final result. That's, I think, as transparent as uh, a federal election uh, in Canada. I started out in this business as a scrutineer on races like this, so I think it's particularly important that we be as transparent about the, the mail process, the verification process, and the counting process as we possibly can. Absolutely. Well, this is a final question for you, Ian. What, what do you think, what do you make of the scenario in Canada now where 
you know, when when Justin Trudeau ran for leader of the Liberal Party, he he claimed that he had 150,000 members. I think he ended up getting about 80,000 people voting for him in that race. We see see this huge surge in interest in the Conservative Party, uh, as you mentioned, upwards of 400,000 new members for this party. Uh, What do you make of the enthusiasm? What do you think just is going through Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh's head right now? Do you think they should be nervous about this huge growth in interest in the Conservative Party. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, uh, in that leadership race, in the Liberal leadership race, when Mr. Trudeau won, uh, as I recall, you could you could join the party by by liking the party on Facebook. It didn't uh, didn't require much of an effort to join the Liberal Party. These are all people in our party who have signed up and paid uh, membership fee and been through uh, uh, the, the, the membership gathering process. So the people who signed up had to make a particular effort to sign up. We also make sure under federal law, if you're going to pay the membership fee, you have to pay it yourself. And so uh, we, we don't have any more the phenomenon in Canada of people, you know, some wealthy donor paying for 10,000 members to sign up. Each one of those people signed up themselves with their own credit card, or in some cases with a personal check. I mean, that is an extraordinary degree of the, the members that we have are people who really want to be members of the Conservative Party. They went through all of these hoops to get into the party. Uh, in order to ensure that they had uh, a, a say over who the next uh, leader would be. I think this, uh, just as a, a party building exercise alone, there's an extraordinary amount of new energy uh, in the party. The party is bigger than it has ever been than any party in Canada has ever been before. And uh, I think the Liberals and the NDP are, if I were them, right now I'd be out trying to figure out where are these people? Who are these people? Where did they come from? I think in some cases, they're people that the Liberals and the NDP might have expected to have in their own camp in the past, and maybe were in their own camp in the past. Then they've been attracted by by virtue of, I think, the, the damage that the Liberal NDP uh, agreement has done and, and, and the case, the pitch that our, our six leadership candidates are making out in the grassroots from coast to coast. I just I, I want you to comment though because I, I saw a poll in uh, I think it was the Globe and Mail that said that sixty percent of Canadians are okay with the agreement between the Liberals and the NDP. Do, do, do you think that's accurate, or do you think that there is this sort of underswell of people who are really not okay with this sort of informal formal agreement of governance? Well, I think that that sixty percent number was a snapshot, you know, a poll at the time when it wasn't clear what what that what the implications of that agreement were going to be, and in so far as it did head off the risk of an election in the next couple of years. Maybe people are relieved. We've had several elections in the past couple of years. They're relieved not to be back to the polls again. I'm not sure that people were too excited about having the election we had in 2021 uh, during during the uh, Omicron wave of the uh, of the pandemic. So, you know, I understand the 60% number. That doesn't mean that 60% of Canadians like the idea of three more years of uh, of rising uh, you know, food prices, gas prices, housing prices, um, that kind of lackadaisical approach to the to the economic growth and to the real economic pain that feel, people are feeling from coast to coast as a result of all of these cost increases. So I, I, I think if I were on the governing side, I have been in government myself, uh, I'd be watching those polls with uh, with a big grain of salt because all of the other indicators uh, that that touch Canadians uh, in their day-to-day lives here are going, are going negative. Okay, well, Dr. Ian Brody, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you for clarifying the leadership process and all the best with this entire thing. Um, we're really looking forward to September 10th and learning who the new leader of the party will be. Good, great. Thanks, Ken. It's good to talk to you. All right, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Mm-hmm.